Well, good morning. This morning we will be in Philippians. We will be finishing Philippians. It's exciting. And then next week we'll be back in Genesis with Pastor Dan. This week we're in Philippians chapter 4. And we're going to start in verse 10 and read all the way through the end. I'll give you a moment to turn there. Philippians chapter 4, starting in verse 10. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Yet, it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving, except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Well, as I said, we are drawing to a close the letter to the Philippians. We have walked all the way through this letter that Paul wrote to the church in Philippi that is full of rejoicing and celebrating in the gospel. Over and over again, we've seen how the gospel changes everything. We've seen how it changes how we view our circumstances. It changes how we relate to one another. It changes how we work out our salvation and how we rest in Christ's accomplished work. It changes how we can be at peace with others and how we go on day to day. Now, in his final greeting... Paul shows us one more aspect of life, something he hasn't touched on yet. One more aspect of life that is utterly changed by the gospel, that is giving and receiving. Now, when it comes to giving and receiving, the world provides a plethora of views, right? So when it comes to giving, it can be viewed as a duty or a virtue or a debt that will be repaid later. When it comes to receiving, it can be viewed as over-dependence 
or as a shameful weakness, or something that's below me, something I am better than, or on the other side, something I deserve, an entitlement. The world offers many takes and many angles on gifts and receiving. But we must ask, what does the gospel have to say about this? Well, in the passage this morning, we see examples of gospel giving and receiving. In this passage, what we see is Paul's thank you to the Philippians who just sent him a gift. So Paul, in Paul we see receiving, and in the Philippians we see giving. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at this passage, and we're going to ask a question. What does gospel giving and receiving look like? That's our question this morning. What does gospel giving and receiving look like? And what we're going to see are four aspects of gospel giving and receiving. And by the end, we'll have an answer to our question. So let's look back at the text. Starting in verse 10, we see the first aspect. Gospel giving and receiving leads to rejoicing. In verse 10 we read, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. So in these verses we never actually read the words thank you, but we do see that Paul's doing something. He's rejoicing. That's how he's saying thank you. He's rejoicing And what's he rejoicing in? He's rejoicing in the fact that the the Philippians' concern for him has been revived. It's been revived. Imagine a perennial plant. Imagine a rose bush. In the fall or in the winter, depending on how long it stays with you, it dies off. And you cut it back. But then in the spring, what happens? A sprout will come up. A stem will come up. You'll see some buds. And then one day, you go out and boom, there's roses again. That's the same, the word used here is a botanical word describing that same picture. Their their concern had just been dormant, but now it is blooming again. And similar to a rose bush, where the changing of the seasons, the rose bush doesn't really have a say in things. November comes whether the rose bush wants it to. The Philippians' dormant season was not apparently their choosing. That's why he writes, you were indeed concerned for me. You did care. You didn't stop caring. But you just didn't have an opportunity. Essentially, you've been concerned, but for whatever reason, you've been unable to act on it. But now they have the opportunity. And we see that this opportunity, what it leads to, is rejoicing. Paul's rejoicing greatly because the Philippian support has now, not dormant, but has blossomed again. But notice, while he rejoices because of their revived giving, what or who does he rejoice in? Does he rejoice in the gift? Does he say, thank you so much for the money. It was so needed. It answered all my problems. I needed it so bad. No. Does he rejoice in the Philippians, saying, you guys are the best I can never do what I do without you. You make this possible. No. He rejoices in the Lord greatly. He acknowledges 
that the provision that he has received through the Philippians' gift is provision from the Lord himself. See, it's because the Lord has worked in the Philippians to both will and to work for his good pleasure and that he has given them this opportunity that the Philippians can give. So this provision that, the, that Paul is rejoicing in is provision from the Lord. And ultimately, it's because they are in Christ. If they were not in Christ and Paul was not in Christ, there would be no reason for this relationship. These are a bunch of nobodies from Philippi and a Christian-killing rabbi in a Roman prison that all they have in common is the blood of Christ. And so because of the Lord, because they share unity in Christ, he rejoices in the Lord for their gospel giving. So two questions we should ask after we see how Paul's gospel receiving and the Philippians' gospel giving leads to rejoicing. Two questions. Do we celebrate generosity like this? When brothers and sisters show generosity, it is evidence of grace in their lives. And it's evidence of the working in of the salvation that God has done and they're working out. It is worth celebrating to see that, the, that our brothers and sisters are working out their salvation through their generous giving. Do we celebrate generosity like this? Do we rejoice in generosity? Second, when or if we do celebrate and rejoice in generosity, do we rejoice in the person, the gift, or the Lord? With Paul as our example here, we see that he rejoiced in the Lord because without him, the Philippians would have no reason to give. This does not remove the, the person's will and the celebration of their working out of their salvation. What it does is it guides our rejoicing to the true cause for the gift. So do we rejoice in the person, the gift, or the Lord? The answer is we should celebrate generosity. And when we see generosity, we should rejoice in the Lord for the evidence of his grace in the heart of the giver. That's the first aspect of gospel giving and receiving, is it leads to rejoicing in the Lord. The second aspect, gospel giving and receiving is joined by Christ-dependent contentment. It's a really long title, so I'm going to say it again. Gospel giving and receiving is joined by Christ-dependent contentment. Despite Paul's rejoicing in receiving the gift in verse 10, he makes a very unusual statement, right? In verse 10, he says, thank you. And in verse 11, he quickly adds, not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I don't know about you, but that's a really weird way to say thank you. Newlyweds don't or shouldn't write thank you notes like that, saying thank you so much for the new toaster and coming to our wedding celebration, but we weren't really in need of it anyway. That's a really weird way to say thank you. What we need to see is that Paul is truly grateful. He makes that clear in verse 10 and then back in chapter 1, verse 6, where he says, or verse 5, Verse 4, he's always giving thanks and joy for them, for their partnership. He makes it very clear he's grateful, but he's using this time, this opportunity of 
gratitude to teach contentment. He highlights his contentment in verse 11, saying, not that I'm speaking of being in need. He doesn't need anything. But Paul, how in the world can you say that? You are in a Roman prison. Don't you remember that? Surely you have a need of some sort. Well, it doesn't matter to him. Look at verses 12 and 13. He says, For I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Verse 12, I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. His point is, no matter what he has, and no matter where he is, he is content in Christ. His contentment is focused on Christ and dependent upon him. And so there's three truths about Christian contentment here that I want to I draw out real quick as we look at Paul's contentment. First, contentment is learned. It's not an overnight change in Paul. It was learned through his life of following Christ. He sat at the table of wealthy Lydia and he experienced affliction in Asia that he describes in 2 Corinthians about him and his companions. It was so utterly, they were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. So he has abounded with Lydia and he has been brought low. And through all of these experiences, he says, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. It was to teach him contentment. It was so he would learn contentment. It is the process of God teaching you by carrying you through the highs and the lows, through the abundance and the hunger, on the mountaintop and in the valley. Contentment is gained as we learn to trust him more deeply each step of the way. Christian contentment is learned. Second, contentment is Christ-dependent. It doesn't depend on circumstances. It is in whatever situation. So that includes full stomachs and growling stomachs. It includes when we have a rainy day fund and when we don't know how we're going to pay the rent. It's not circumstantial. It doesn't depend on your strength to tolerate or endure tough situations. We think of contentment like that. We think of it as a stoic virtue. Actually, people in Paul's day did as well. It's where this word comes from. It's not saying you get what you get and you don't throw a fit. That's not contentment. In verse 13, we see that it's not just tolerating, it's doing. I can do all things. Not tolerate, but do. And it's doing not on your own, but in Christ. So it's Christ-dependent. It depends upon Christ. That's the secret that Paul has learned. It's that through Christ, he can face all these circumstances. Not he can make the free throw or ace the test or hit, like nail the job interview. No, he can do these things. He can face all these things. He can be content 
in Christ, and he can do all that the Lord has given him to do. It's because everything he's been called to do does not depend upon him, Paul, or on what he has, money and partnerships, but it depends upon him, Jesus, and what he has accomplished. It's because Jesus has paid the greatest debt Paul could ever have. It's because Jesus has freed him from the need and the the slavery to the world and to money and to sin. It's because Jesus has provided to him what he can never lose. It's because of Jesus. See, mankind is a slave to sin, accruing a debt before God. We have sin that must be paid for, and we have law-keeping that must be provided. But we do neither. We can do neither perfectly. We cannot pay for our sin, and we cannot perfectly keep the law. Over and over again, our debt goes higher and higher. But his blood, Jesus' blood was the payment to pay our debt, and his life of law-keeping was the cost that God required. So now that debt that's over us, that keeps us in slavery and keeps us dependent upon us is gone because he's paid it in full. So now because of Christ, as we sang just now, we don't have to fear any fate before us. We know we're forgiven. The future is sure. It can't be taken away. It can't be changed. Our situations do not affect it. It is sure because the price has been paid, because Jesus bled and suffered for our pardon. And not only that, he didn't just pay the debt, but he was raised to overthrow the grave. Friends, he was, he was raised, he lives, he is reigning, so now we can hold to this. It's not just someone died, it's someone raised from the dead, defeating sin. So he is our plea, and our chains are gone, and we are free in him. That's why our contentment is Christ-dependent. In him, we are free from sin. We are free from our debt. We are free from being controlled by the world and our our situations. We are free from our circumstances because the future is sure. He has settled the debt and he has raised to prove it. And because he's been raised, he is with you in those circumstances. Friends, you can't be a Christian and not believe in the actual historic resurrection of Jesus. The Bible doesn't allow it. Orthodox doctrine does not allow it, yes. But you can't face tomorrow if Jesus hasn't been raised. The reason Paul can be content is because Jesus is alive. See, when Jesus raises from the dead, the last words he tells his disciples in Matthew, the last words he leaves us with, behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And he is because he's alive. The resurrection of Jesus is the truth in which we can stand and know I can be content. He's secured what I cannot secure on my own. And he is with me today, tomorrow, and evermore. That is the promise. That is why our contentment is Christ-dependent. So when money is tight... When helpers are lacking, when pressures are high, when the circumstances, circumstances seem like you can't overcome them, you can be content with what you have and where you are because he is right there with you. 
He is right there with you. Contentment is Christ-dependent. Third, third characteristic of contentment. Contentment produces generosity. Look down at verse 19 real quick with me. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. We see that in Christ, all of our needs will be met. They have been met. They will be met. There's no need he can't meet. Why? Because what's his storehouse? Where do his riches come from? In glory in Christ Jesus. He is able to overcome all circumstances and provide for us in all situations. Maybe to do this, maybe he will provide for you how he provides for Paul. Through the generosity and care of your other brothers and sisters here in the local church. I think that's common. That's the common way. That's why he's given us each other and brought us together into covenant community together to care for, to love, and to help and be generous with one another. Maybe he will provide for you in a way that only he can provide for you. Regardless, what this means is that we can be content with what we do have and we can be generous with what we are given because we know he will provide. We can be like Abel. Last week, Pastor Dan talked about, or preached on Genesis 4, and he talked about Abel. We can give our first fruits, right? Not because we give God something to earn something back, hoping that he'll give us something back. No, Abel gave his first fruits. He gave generously without holding back, knowing that what he does supply, what God does supply, will be enough. So we can give generously as we see that our contentment is in the fact that he provides for us. Gospel giving and receiving is joined by Christ-dependent contentment. It's our second aspect of gospel giving and receiving. So friends, are you content in Christ? That's the question we should ask. Are you trusting in these promises for your strength, for your contentment? Or are you looking to what you have? Are you looking to your works? Are you looking to your might and your ability to suck it up? Are you looking to your money? Or are you looking to Christ? By faith in Christ and turning from looking to ourselves to looking to him and being strengthened in him, we can be content. We can face all circumstances in him. And we can give generously and faithfully trusting in him. Gospel giving and receiving is joined by Christ-dependent contentment. The third aspect. Gospel giving and receiving is essential to gospel partnership. Seems kind of obvious. But it's often overlooked. Gospel giving and receiving is essential to gospel partnerships. In verses 14 to 16, Paul gets back to his thank you. Okay, so he gave us a thank you in verse 10. He qualifies it in verses 11 to 13. Now he's going to say thank you again in verse 14. It says, yet it was kind of you to share in my trouble. I am content, but that doesn't mean I don't appreciate what you've done. Thank you for sharing in my trouble. And what's he mean by that? 
He means, thank you for partnering with me. It's the same word he's been using all through this book for partnership. My gospel partnership. You are my partners. You are partnering with me. You are sharing in my trouble. It's the same word. And look how he describes that partnership. It's through consistent giving and receiving. There's a link there. You can't have partnership without giving and receiving. So I want to look at how he describes giving, the Philippians giving specifically. In verse 15, it begins by saying it is in Paul's gospel ministry. Or sorry, they began their giving in, in Paul's gospel ministry. So it was not later in his ministry, but in Acts 16, when Paul and his posse show up to Philippi, and Lydia converts, and others, according to Paul here in Philippians, immediately they were partnering with him in giving and receiving. I mean, we see it. Lydia took him home and fed him. She's giving to him, providing for him. Second, in verse 15, this was without encouragement or peer pressure from other churches, right? Paul explains, no churches except for you. They gave, not out of compulsion, but out of desire. It was from their hearts. They wanted to give to Paul without having to be coerced to do so. Verse 16, not only is it a seemingly solo act, but they're also faithful partners. He literally writes, and even in Thessalonica, once and again, you sent to meet my needs. He puts once and again actually at the front of the sentence to say, it was over and over again. You guys never stopped. You were consistent, faithful partners. And you partnered with me in Thessalonica. Acts 17 shows us that Paul was only there for like three weeks. Philippians didn't care. You have a need, Paul? We're going to meet it. You have a need, Paul? Where are you? We're going to meet it. It doesn't matter how far. It doesn't matter how long. We will faithfully and consistently meet your needs. In verse 15, their partnership was not lip service. It was monetary. The terms here for giving and receiving are commercial words. They're banking terms. They're words you would hear in the marketplace. It's debit and credit are the words here. The Philippians' partnership was shown in their giving money over and over and over again. Their partnership then was consistent, it was faithful, and it was financial support to Paul. And notice their partnership's not simply with Paul. It's not just that they like Paul or they feel bad for him because he's in a Roman prison. It's because they're partnering with him in the gospel. In chapter 1, verse 15, or verse 5, he, that's what he says, your partnership with me in the gospel. It's for the purpose of supporting a brother who is proclaiming the gospel of Christ to the lost world. That is the whole driver of this giving and receiving. Now, where would the Philippians get a model for such generosity? Why would they give so consistently and faithfully and despite circumstances and generously and, and for the purpose of the gospel? Where would they get that kind of example to follow? In Christ. In chapter 2, Paul explains that we're reminded that Jesus emptied himself in light of the will of the Father and the need of his people. And he emptied himself so that he, we could be filled up with his righteousness. That's what Paul explicitly says in 2 Corinthians 8. 
you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Heaven gave us all that it had when it gave us Jesus. The giving of the grace depends upon the giving of Jesus. Giving is inextricably linked, then, with grace. Receiving grace is linked with giving. One commentator uses the story of Sam Houston to show this picture. I thought it was very helpful and almost a little humorous as well. To show the inextricable link between receiving grace, experiencing grace, knowing the gospel and how Christ has emptied himself for us, and then giving generously. He looks to Sam Houston. He explains, Houston was a colorful soldier and politician best known for his role in bringing Texas into the United States. He surprised everyone when he became a Christian. He surprised everyone even more when after his baptism, he declared his desire to pay half of the local minister's salary. When someone asked him why, why would you do that, Sam? Or Mr. Houston, probably. Why would you do that? He said, my pocketbook was baptized too. The point being, the conversion of our wallets should be included in our conversion in Christ. Gospel partnerships inevitably involve financial partnerships because what we value most is making much of Christ and spreading his fame. That's what we value, so that's what we invest in. That's where we put our resources. Gospel giving and receiving is essential to gospel partnerships. So if we're serious about gospel partnerships, we will consistently and generously give. The Lord has blessed us and continues to do so here at Chapelwood with consistent, faithful giving. The e-news is one of the most encouraging things to me every week to see just what the Lord is continuing to do here. So let's press into that. Let's continue in that as faithful, consistent gospel partners. And we can be partners with more than just our local church. We can be gospel partners with so many other institutions and people. We can partner with missionaries who would welcome a gospel partner, who are in dire need of a gospel partner. We can partner with institutions such as Wycliffe Bible translators that need gospel partners so they can translate the Bible into all languages so all Christians can hear the Bible and read the Bible in their heart language. We can partner with seminaries who are diligently working to train pastors and missionaries so that your grandchildren and your great-grandchildren have biblically equipped pastors to proclaim the gospel. Friends, we can partner with all these institutions, with all that we have. We can be gospel partners with our gospel giving and receiving. Okay, so that's our third point. Second, the last aspect that we're going to look at of gospel giving and receiving in this text is that gospel giving and receiving bears fruit. I'm going to go back starting in verse 17 and read to the end. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. 
I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gift you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. So in these final verses, we see that gospel giving and receiving bears fruit. Three fruits, it seems. The first fruit is the Philippians fruit in verse 17. He makes it clear he's not after the gift, right? It's the third time he said this. Thank you, but I'm good. Thank you, I can do it on my own. But thank you. Thank you. He's done it again. But now he's saying, I'm not trying to get rich. I'm actually after fruit that increases to your credit. I'm after fruit that increases to your credit. What kind of fruit is that, Paul? Well, it's not fruit that secures their salvation. He's made that abundantly clear throughout the entire letter, specifically verses 8 through 9 in chapter 3. We won't go back there, but if you're wondering, read Philippians 3. It's, it's impossible to think that they are going to earn their salvation with their fruit. It's not to secure their salvation, but to show their salvation. That's what he's after. That's the fruit he's after. Not security, but a witness of their salvation. Jesus talks about this in Matthew 7. He explains that you can identify false prophets and thus true prophets by their fruit. He said, you will also be able to recognize prophets, people of God, by their fruit, because as Jesus explains, every healthy tree bears good fruit. The fruit is the product or the witness to the health. The fruit is not to secure but to show the salvation. At the same time, Jesus promises to his disciples that their sacrifice will not go unrewarded. Instead, in Luke 12, he explains that it is the Father's good pleasure, it's his good pleasure to give the kingdom to his people, and that in doing so, they will receive not earthly, not materialistic, not golden wealth that we think of, but they will receive heavenly rewards. This is what Pastor Alistair Begg, in a very wonderful Scottish accent that I will not try to do, um, my Missouri comes out, and it's, it's not good, but he calls it your IEA, your individual eternal account. The point being, as we sacrifice the things of this world, we miss out on nothing. We miss out on nothing. We lose nothing. Instead, it's all gain. It's a heavenly gain of rewards from the one who has all riches and glory, Christ. So it is fruit that bears and shows our salvation, and it's fruit in a heavenly, IEA, individual, eternal account, heavenly rewards. So first fruit that gospel giving and receiving bears. The second fruit is God's pleasure and glory. Look at how Paul describes the gift that the Philippians sent with Epaphroditus at the end of verse 18. He says, the gift is a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. He's drawing from the Old Testament here. This is an illustration to describe worship. 
The first time we see it's in Genesis 8, so we'll see in a few weeks with Pastor Dan, or months, when Noah made a sacrifice following the flood. It was a fragrant offering. And then all throughout the rest of the Old Testament, there's sacrifices that are a fragrant offering. It's worship before God. And not only is it a fragrant offering of worship, it pleases God. Friends, I think we can think that God can't be pleased. I think sometimes it's because we maybe overemphasize our views on Isaiah 64 with the filthy rags. That's in regard to gaining our salvation. We cannot gain our salvation by our, our works. That is filthy rags before God. But in Christ, we don't earn our salvation, but in Christ we can please God, just like any father should. God does find pleasure in his children's obedience. So he's, he's not just a far-off, distant God that gives you what you need for salvation and leaves you alone or frowning at you and angry all the time. He's Father. To those in Christ, he calls you his child, and he knows you, and he loves you, and he's with you. He's intimately near us. And as a father should, he knows us, hears us, cares for us, and is pleased with us when we exemplify our Savior in our obedience. As we are in Christ and exemplify Christ and obey God, it pleases him. Hebrews 13 explains, do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. But again, don't think you can just do this to make God happy. Hebrews 11 makes it very clear that without faith, it is impossible to please God. But in Christ, through faith, the fragrant offering to God that satisfied all of our debts, we can please him through our obedience. And that is through our giving in this case. We please God, and looking at verse 20, we give glory to God through our generosity. Paul ends with doxology. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. So in Christ, our giving and receiving leads to the fruit of pleasing and glorifying God. And the last fruit we see here is that the gospel advances. Through our giving and receiving, the gospel advances. In verses 21 to 23, it's just kind of a tagged on, your Bible might call it a final greeting or a farewell. It's just a tagged on bit there. But there is just one more spoonful of encouragement tucked away. I'm going to start in verse 21. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Did you notice who especially greets the Philippians? Those of Caesar's household. Now, that might not shock us on first reading, He's been hanging out with the imperial guards earlier in chapter 2. However, they didn't greet the Philippians as saints. He just said that they knew that Paul's imprisonment was for Christ. But here he says, all the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. He's saying that there are saints in Christ in Caesar's household. A little background on these folks. 
they were very proud to serve in Caesar's household. And they had roles that consisted of being part of Caesar's entourage, a personal attendant, and some of them even supervised his financial affairs. So these are not like lowly nobodies in Caesar's household. These, these people actually added to their name an abbreviation noting that they were part of Caesar's household. Like it's a big deal. And Paul notes at the very end that the gospel is going forth to the most unlikely of places. It's going forth in the household where Rome's God lives and reigns. It's going forth in Caesar's palace itself. Through gospel giving and receiving, we see that the gospel goes forth. The fruit of gospel giving and receiving is the unstoppable advance of the gospel to the farthest and most unlikely reaches. Friends, our generosity, our gospel giving, is not without fruit. It shows our salvation. It credits to our heavenly reward. It's an act of worship that pleases God, and it further advances the gospel. How then can we not give generously to that end? So, those are our four aspects. We began asking the question, what does gospel giving and receiving look like? We've looked at the examples of Paul and Philippians, and we've seen that it looks like it leads to rejoicing in Christ, in what he's done and what he provides through his people. Secondly, it cultivates a Christ-dependent contentment. We look to him to supply all of our needs. We look to him for he has supplied all we need in him on the cross. And we look to him as he is with us forever. And gospel giving and receiving is essential to gospel partnerships. You can't be a gospel partner without gospel giving and receiving. And finally, we saw that it bears fruit. So in the end, I think we can answer our question. We can say that gospel giving and receiving is Christ-centered and Christ-dependent. That's our answer. When we want to know what's the gospel due to our giving and receiving, it centers everything on him and it depends wholeheartedly upon him. Our rejoicing is Christ-centered, exalting what he has done in the hearts of the generous. Our contentment is rooted in our dependence upon Christ and freedom from the love of money in the world. Our partnerships are centered around the advance of the message of Christ's gospel. And our fruit is evidence of his work and leads to worship of Christ. Here in our, in our offering and in our generosity, and it leads to the worship of Christ by all those around the world. So how do we think about giving and receiving? Well, it's not a duty. It's not homage to earn favor. Receiving is not a sign of overdependence, shame, or anything else the world wants to label it with. Giving and receiving for Christians is all brought about by what he has accomplished and resting in what he provides. It is Christ-centered and Christ-dependent. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, as we come to the end of this letter to the Philippians, 
We have seen, we have marveled at how you have changed every aspect of our life by the work, death, and resurrection of Christ. Father, we pray that you impress these upon our hearts. You change our loves and affections continually to you. We do not look to our circumstances. We do not look to our works. We do not look to whatever the world might draw us to, but we look to you. We depend upon you, and we become strengthened in you. Father, help us to grow in our love and devotion for Christ, and help us to grow in our giving and receiving for his purposes. As we have received the grace of Christ, may we give so others may too. Father, cause us to have a burden for others, and cause that burden to instill in us a desire and a working out so that Christ is glorified and you are pleased. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.